Welcome to the HR Uprising podcast. This podcast series explores HR hot topics and challenges through conversations with relevant experts and real-life HR learning and OD professionals. The HR Uprising is about learning through collaboration and evidence-based action. We want colleagues to have the confidence and skills to rise up through their organizations by delivering real, lasting business value. Now, introducing your host, chartered psychologist, experienced change agent, entrepreneur, speaker, and coach, Lucinda Carney. Hello and welcome to the first HR Uprising podcast of 2020. Well, it's the first one that I'm recording in 2020. Hopefully some of you heard our Best Bits episodes last week, which featured a top 10 of our conversations with. We did it with a little bit of fun with the top 10 pop pickers based on feedback we'd had from others as to which which conversation's been most useful. And if you are a new listener, that's probably a really good one to go and listen to because it will allow you to get a snap, snippet of the ten, well, some of the conversations we had last year. And if the topic's of interest, of course, you can then go and find them. Obviously, you can find all of our back catalogue. I can't believe this is actually our 37th episode. So we're definitely going to keep it going up to 50, if not further. And you'll be able to see that we've been alternating basically conversations with and interviews. And I'll come back to more about what we're going to do next year. But you can find any of our back catalogue if you want to know more about what we've been doing. Go to www.hruprising.com and there you'll be able to see all of the episodes. They're structured in different places. You can see show notes because very often with an episode, we'll then direct you to other useful resources or if it was a conversation with somebody, we'll send you their, we'll put their contact details on there. Essentially, we'll try and be, give you as much useful information on the show notes, which are on the website, um, as possible. So if you want to find out more, go to that website. If you want to collaborate more, because what's the HR Uprising about? It is actually about sharing useful knowledge, not just the, the buzz, not just the buzzwords. A lot of it's about demystifying, because I like to be quite practical and common sense if I can. So it's demystifying some of these buzzwords and working out what do they mean for us? If I'm a people professional in a large, medium or small organisation, what does that mean for me? What can I do with this information and how can I add value? Because ultimately that's our job. So for me, that's the point of the HR Uprising is sharing information that that can help us all add value in our organisations, but also building a platform where we can collaborate and learn from each other. Talking of platforms, please do get in touch and connect with us. Connect with me on LinkedIn, um, Instagram, Twitter, all of those. You can look at Lucinda Carney or HR Uprising. I think I'm pretty easy to find. We've got a LinkedIn group, which is building. We've got 150 people on it called HR Uprising. And uh, that is, LinkedIn has made it quite hard for groups to interact lately. We'll see if that improves in 2020. Hopefully it will. I'm also active on the HR Ninjas. Uh, which is a really nice interactive group and that's on Facebook. So hopefully there are social platforms and actually if you're listening to this and you're perhaps a little reticent on social media, I really would encourage you to to get involved to a, to a certain extent, even if you need to lurk, because there's so much useful information out there on these groups. So then moving into what we've got planned for 2020 with the HR Uprising. Well, we're going to continue this structure of doing a sort of solo episode like today's episode which I'll talk more about in a moment and then alternating with a conversation usually. The difference we're planning to do with the conversations with this year is that we're going to give them mainly a focus of either an expert masterclass where I'm going to work with another colleague, an expert in their field 
And I've got one coming up soon, which is a lady called Karen Gill, who's going to talk about culture change. So this is where I'm going to hand over to one of you guys out there who has a piece of expertise that you'd be happy to share with other HR uprisers. So it'd be more educational than an interview because I think that's more practical and more useful. So that's the goal with those. And then the second option that um, we're going to look at is uh, we're going to use conversations with CEO. So the theme is kind of what CEOs want from HR. So again, for those of you who've been listening to the HR uprising for some time, you know that one of the things that I'm passionate about really is helping us to be valued, to have our value seen within organisations. And by doing that, how do we, what we need to do is we need to understand what those CEOs, the senior people within an organisation really want from us. So I thought that would be quite interesting. So I've got a few CEOs that are people friendly lined up to find out from them what their views are on the value of HR. And so hopefully that series will also be of interest. If I've got listeners out there who've got a CEO who would be up for taking part in one of those conversations with, please do get in touch with me um, through any route, actually, but actually particularly um, good through Instagram um, in terms of the, the connecting and things like that. The other one is if you're someone who's got a particular piece of expertise that you'd be happy to do a masterclass, which I'm sure there are lots of listeners who could, please, could you get in touch with that? So I can only do that if you tell me what, but tell me, you know, not just the person, what it is the masterclass could be on so we can make sure that we've got a real breadth of things. And further to that, if there's a topic you want me to do a solo episode on or to find someone who's an expert on, again, please let us know that. So on to the subject of today's podcast. And this was suggested by Alison Singer. As I said earlier, it's really appreciated where you're suggesting what topics you'd like me to research for the podcast. Um, I'm very grateful for those. And we've got a number of others coming up that um, I'm going to be looking into and recording imminently. So this one we thought was relevant because it had been mentioned a couple of times. Actually, I know someone else asked for this a couple of months ago. And something that we all know, we've all heard of, succession planning, we kind of know what it is. But when you look into it, there's so many... HR jargon terms in there that I thought that probably this is a bit of a jargon buster, maybe, um, and we look at it that way. So what would we define as succession planning? Well, I believe it's a strategic talent management activity. The purpose of it, in my experience, is predominantly around risk management. So it's often done in quite a narrow way, sometimes behind closed doors. But I would encourage many of us to think about it as more of a strategic flow of future talent through the business. So we should think about it maybe more broadly. In terms of the way I'm going to deal with this podcast, though, um, I'm going to look at certain topics like identifying key roles. Should you have a top down or bottom up approach to succession planning? Terms like readiness, potential. What do we mean by that? What do we mean by bench strength, flight risk? And then I'll talk about... Um, things like the nine box grid, which are bandied around. Some people love them, some people hate them, but what is it? And you can make your own decisions whether it's useful for your business. And I'm also going to lead into um, the leadership pipeline and also a touch on the boomerang effect, which is something that's been requested by someone else. Um, I think it's Siobhan Goldman, but I'm going to do a separate podcast on that itself. So if you're going to do succession planning and actually I would encourage that every business of every size should consider succession planning to a certain extent for the risk management issue in the first place and the reason I say risk management first is the second part of it is it's about talent management and talent retention but if we look at um, dealing with risk is that the reality is that 
certain roles, whether you're a large organisation or a small organisation, there could be a huge problem if people disappear from it, certainly in the short term. So the concept of the CEO or the FD is knocked over by a bus, that could cause a big problem. Interestingly, it's often in the larger organisations that deal with this more formally and have these um, successions uh, plans built in, yet in the smaller organisations, it could be more business limiting because the reality is a larger organisation has very often got good second in command and those people who are operating strategically have got others who can keep, keep the doors open, if you like. If you're in an SME, actually, people might be completely paralysed if a key person went. And that's where often if you took investment into a small business, investors quite commonly request key man insurance. And apologies for the sexism, that's what they tend to call it. Um, And that is where they want to ensure that people have got um, someone. Well, they may not have someone in a small business who can automatically step into the shoes of the founder, let's say. So what they might need to do is pay for consultancy or external expertise for a period of time. So they need budget for it. Either way, you know, the reality is certain people in a business are very key to the future. So what you need to do in terms of the risk management access, um, activity around succession planning is ask yourself a few questions, assuming you've not got this in place already. So which roles or positions in your business or organisation are essential to either the survival of the business or delivering the strategy? And that's one way you have to take back and think which, you know, where, which ones are essential to taking us forward and driving it forwards. And the second one is which roles require highly specialist knowledge or skills that are difficult or expensive to recruit in or replace? So what that's identifying as you think about that, that is going to slightly different, there'll be slightly different pieces. One might be very senior. The other roles may not be so senior, but they're very niche. And it's quite easy to overlook that somebody, let's say, who has a particular understanding of your network infrastructure, which happens to be highly customised. Or this is an interesting one, actually, you've got an HR population, because my experience is that very often the people who are put down as successes, it's your classic CEO, it's your FD, it's your sales directors, those people, and maybe people um, are culminated to customers, etc. Those are automatically on the succession plan, despite the fact that succession planning is done by HR. HR is very often not seen as being particularly crucial to the future strategy of the business. Now, that is something that we should be changing personally. But let's say there's someone in HR who oversaw you're using a pick, you're using a specific system, I'm thinking of something that's highly customised like SAP or Dynamics or something like that. You've had to invest hours and weeks and loads of pain into setting up a specific system. They're the only one who knows how to use it. Now, if they walk tomorrow, that could be incredibly tri- tricky to undo. In fact, it's very costly for the business because they're the only one who actually understands why or how it's being configured or how it runs in a certain way. Yet often they'd be overlooked. So I would encourage you to, yes, of course, the, the obvious, the usual suspects, the board are going to be considered. But are we thinking about people who have niche knowledge in your business that would be quite hard to bring in? Um, and then this is kind of similar to, to that kind of idea of it. Those are sort of roles. Other people who've got specific relationships or customers as well. So, you know, in terms of, let's say, that it's someone who happens to own the relationship with your biggest customer, probably be quite a problem if they went. So are you making sure there are other people that's managing the risk? 
So those are the questions that you need to think about. So which roles are essential to delivering the strategy? Which roles require really specialist knowledge and skills that are hard to replace? So that might be your sort of your technical skills. And are there people who've got key knowledge or experience that's specific to your business that would be a problem to lose? So thinking about risk, that's key. And um, we'll talk later about flight risk, which is the typical um, terminology we use. But just as a common sense, the first thing you do is who are, the, which are the roles and who are the people in those roles? And then you sit back and go, actually, what are the chances of them leaving? I, are they a flight risk? Um, and that would be something that we'll talk later about how you can do that. But that's your starting point in terms of your risk planning. Many organisations don't go further than that for succession planning, which is okay, but I'd say it's short-sighted. I believe you should also have in place a thought around bottom-up succession planning, which is less traditional, but probably worth thinking, where you might want to think about the key skills of a particular role that are required and the future potential that you've got as a business to meet it. So this is more, I'd say, about career planning or about skills. It's about thinking that for the future, you know, you might be an organisation working in a certain way with a certain set of technical skills but you know the future is digital or the future um, is a different type of research so you need to have people with different skills and attributes and that's quite an important way of being strategic you know we've talked on previous episodes of how can we be more strategic for this is you need to understand where the business is going and where the future skills gaps would be and think about succession planning there in more of a bottom-up way which is how can you build a pool of people and this does link into talent management and the term talent pool of people who will have the future skills required because the ceo of today you may need certain skills but they may be an even better ceo you know they may not it may not be the right thing to do to look to recruit um, a carbon copy of them what you might want them is to be a slightly different one for the future so i would suggest that you you're going to have to do the risk management first but try and then also move into a more of um, a career planning where everyone in the organisation or the people who have aspirations can see that they have a future and they can see the sort of skills the organisation wants them to develop or needs them to develop and you give them the facility to meet them. Now, this also for me is quite key because if you can convey to, to those with ambition what skills the organisation is going to need in the future, those who are motivated and have drive, which are actually the people you want to retain and to take forwards, are going to look to develop themselves in that direction. Those that don't, it's not. this is not about you spoon feeding people, it's about you giving people clarity and visibility of the opportunity to have a career path. The other key aspect of that is that those people who are the talented ones, but they're quite a long way away from being future successors to the top, they can see that there is an opportunity and that probably reduces the chance of them leaving. Because of course this leads into what we use this term readiness. So there may be people who have the potential to be you know, the future CEO, but not for three or five years or maybe longer. So where we've seen saying that um, succession plan is about analysing those key roles in the organisation and its capability of people for, of um, filling them, you've got to think about this in terms of timescales. And I think this is quite hard, actually. So the term readiness is often used. So you might say that someone who's ready now which very few people are, but really it means in the next six months, they've got the key skills, they've got the key attributes, and they could probably step in in an emergency. So they would be someone who's an immediate successor. 
But what you need to be doing is thinking about lower down the organisation, who might be with the right development, who could be ready to do this in, let's say, 18 months to three years, and then probably a third level would be three to five years. Now, if you think about it like that, I visualise that very much as a pyramid because, of course, what you want to have is more people in that three to five years pot than you do in the ready now pot. Not least because not everyone who's in the three to five year potential pot isn't necessarily going to make it um, or that might not be the right thing for them, but also they could have potential to do other things. And we'll talk more about the skills that they need later. Um, the other thing, of course, is if you've got I know a lot of people in the ready now part then you do need to make sure that you're developing them because you have got the opportunity or giving them career opportunities because presumably only one of them can be the next CEO so it's thinking about what they're going to do or what other opportunities there are for them and not being too narrow so we've talked about readiness I've mentioned that I see it as a as a, as a sort of pyramid and I say then for at the bottom of the pyramid you want to make sure you've got more people in there the question is, how do you develop them? How do you make sure they're developing the right skills? And I'll come on to that later. So readiness is it's kind of a combination, really, though. It includes potential. I use that term. But um, potential is something where in order to assess whether someone is ready to be a successor, you would look at their potential. Now, again, for me, this is a highly contentious term, potentially, <laughs> sorry, sorry for the pun there, um, because it's sometimes really, it's used so subjectively. I have seen an experienced succession planning, which is done in a darkened room. It's like, oh, they've got no potential, they haven't. And people are just written off. And that takes no account of the, the individual view or the motivation of that individual in question. It's also quite tricky if they've got high potential, but maybe in a, in a role that you don't want a succession plan for. And that's where I do believe in terms of talent management, we should be thinking more broadly so that we keep people in the organisation and try not to be so narrow minded. Because quite often you'll have, I experience say, um, the financial, the FD, people might say the only person who could be the future FD has to have come up a commercial or a finance route in the organisation. Well, is that actually true? And I think if you look at the skills that people need at, I'm not saying they should be, you know, numerous, uh, in uh, financially illiterate, but, you know, they, they may well, it's very much when we get to the top, it's much more about strategic acumen than it, you don't have to be the best accountant. We've said on previous podcasts, the best accountant is not necessarily the best FD. The best salesperson is almost never the best sales director. And the best engineer is almost never the best engineering director. So, Trying not to be too narrow is a challenge. And again, these are the things that we are juggling in HR if we're trying to manage this piece, because very often those at the top will be very narrow and very blinkered. And I think our challenge um, is to challenge that blinkered style. So going on with the, the whole potential, though, there are ways in which you can try and be more objective about potential. So you might look at key competencies. If you're being really robust about this, you might identify the key competencies that you're going to need at a senior level in the organisation. And then you can assess people against those competencies. Um, we've got a download on this where I've looked at various ways in which potential is assessed. Some do it through numbers. Uh, so they might say someone's got you know high potential or no potential, or, or they're promotable or they've got lateral potential. Of course, that is also a, a point in time it's a point in time assessment when you put a number on someone and next year it could be different, which that to me means 
Potential isn't that robust an indicator. It is still a judgment, so we should always be open-minded. If you want to try and increase objectivity further, so you're, you're, let's say you've got an option where you've got all your competencies um, and you might assess that person against those competencies and, and rate them and then end up with an overall rate, rating about their potential, you can also use other tools like psychometric tools, 360 degree feedback, assessment centres. Now, one of the things about assessment centres, this one of the key indicators of potential of doing the job is actually getting people to do activities that involve doing the actual job. And again, it's remembering that the job that you may be um, assessing someone for is not necessarily the job they're doing right now. So have they got those key skills to be more strategic in that job, which is probably what's required at a more senior level. And of course, you must always look at their existing performance because you really shouldn't be succession, um, succession planning somebody who's not performing in their current role. And this is where I think expectation management can come in, that people, you know, things like graduate schemes can set unrealistic expectations with people where they think that they're going to you know, be the MD in six months' time. And this is where having a path and helping people realise that they play a part in this path and they must perform in order, they need to perform in their day job as an absolute bare minimum before you can ever be part on a succession plan or career path. That's their responsibility. If they're then performing, then it's about looking at their skills and their potential against the competencies that will be required in future, as well as the competencies that are required in their current role, and then developing them against those and putting development in place. Taking this further, and I mentioned this earlier, and I think this is the huge bit that you can only ever, you can't underestimate, is the individual's view in this. So a lot of the competencies that might be being assessed, they're often assessed by the line manager. Maybe if you use 360 or an assessment centre, then it's other observers. But I do think it's important to take the individual's view into question. I really do. And a Harvard Business Review article, which I've put the link to in the show notes, um, says that there are three aspects of assessing um, potential. One is ability, which is kind of what we're talking about in terms of assessed ability of their competencies. The second one is social skills. And by social skills, they're talking about leadership skills because it's all very well being in a senior role. But if you don't have the skills to take others with you and to uh, leverage groups of teams, then you're not going to be that successful. And the third one is personal drive. And that might be being ambitious enough to put yourself out to uh, go and work in a in a role where you have to commute week weekends or, or otherwise in order to get that experience to take yourself further. So it's being prepared to put yourself out. Now that's overlaps into something I've not gone into as a specific topic, um, but mobility. And I think this is where women can often lose out because there are periods of time where people, they might have the drive, but actually because of personal issues, they are not prepared to be away five days a week. So that's something to bear in mind, I think, for us as challenges. Does that mean they're not potential? They can have huge drive with the ability to be location independent and high levels of technology, do we have to rule out talent on that? I'd be aware of where we have sort of gender bias unintentionally because of that mobility aspect. But again, those are the sort of things that uh, that there you could still really work out. If I was talking to someone, let's say, who's a, who's a female with young children and they really have got that potential to be a future FD sales director, whatever, well, how can they develop themselves? Work with them to find the solution because if they've got the drive, they will be motivated to find the solution. Let's just make sure that we don't wedge people into those classic, well, you've got to go and do the secondment in Germany before you'd ever be capable of that role. I don't think we should be that blinkered if we can avoid it. Otherwise, I think we might be losing talent. 
Okay, so we've covered identifying key roles, top-down or bottom-up succession planning. We've looked at the term readiness. We've looked at potential. Um, mentioned and touched on flight risk, which I'll come back to. Let's now talk about that old term, the nine-box grid. So many of us have heard of it. It's used also in performance management. I find people do it with performance and competencies. Uh, it's thought that the nine-box grid term originates from McKinsey in the 70s, um, and it was something to do with the Boston Consulting Group of, of assessing talent. The point of it was to compare people within the organisation and group them. And the point of that, again, was so that they could... They, it was assumed that therefore if you were in one of these groups and obviously it's a three by three grid so you've got nine boxes then whichever group you're in then you'd have similar development needs but not only that they were deciding where to prioritize spend so they would be prioritizing spend towards the top right um, of that particular grid it's fairly logical um, the two axes are based on performance so where i said earlier you want to make sure that the person is definitely performing and potential and we've talked earlier about how we measure it so if you're doing a robust job of assessing performance and potential and you're comfortable with mathematical ratings, and I appreciate there will be people out there who absolutely hate tick boxes. Um, I've also seen some really nice talent management sort of flow tools, which are much more, um, yeah, much more of a flow rather than a box grid. Um, but we might as well, the point of this is I'm not advocating that this is the only way to do it or even the best way to do it. I'm just saying this is one of the most commonly used terms in succession planning. The main, main thing I would say is if you are going to use this, it's only as good as the quality of the ratings that you've put in place against performance and against potential. If you're just sitting around in a room and all of the senior managers are just putting people into the boxes, then such subjectivity will be in place and you will just have the usual suspects. And most organisations I've worked in, the usual suspects are always at the top and there are lots of talent that isn't tapped into because they're either hidden underneath the manager that isn't particularly supportive um they're just not they haven't or they're just a bit more modest i don't they've not had the opportunity to shine and too often organizations give the same old people the same opportunities to shine anyway we've got our two axes and they result in a high potential and a high performance at the top right low potential low performance at the bottom left which is where performance management should be kicking in as in the classic management of performance as opposed to a positive management of performance and the logic is that those in the top right not just the high potential, high performance, but maybe the, the the boxes either side of those would be the ones that are going to feature on your succession plans and would have development in line with the succession plan. So I would expect a nine box grid to feed your succession plan if done well. This, of course, leads into development, which is very important in terms of succession planning. It's a total different subject. It's, talent management is so broad. But uh, an interesting dilemma I'm just going to float here is should people know they're on a succession plan or not? Mm, what do you think? It's a bit of an ethical debate, isn't it? So traditional top-down succession planning, in my experience, is quite often done behind closed doors. And if people's potential is being assessed by others without their input, then it's quite awkward letting people know that they haven't been assessed as having potential. Very nice if they have, but it's only a very narrow elite group that you're working with so my view is it can cause more harm than good that said i'm all about transparency and motivation and this is why i really subscribe to this bottom-up approach as well if you can possibly do it where you can go what's your interest you don't have to you know i could say actually i want to be the next md um 
the fact that I've got aspirations to do that and I understand, I understand what skills I need to demonstrate doesn't mean that I'm on the, if the MD gets knocked over by the bus succession plan, you know, to, to be ready now. I might not feature on the one behind closed doors, but it doesn't mean I can't put myself forward as a successor. And, and that's, that's the kind of balance that I feel might be a more positive way of doing it. So a couple more points just to touch on, and I'm aware that we've got up to 27 minutes on the podcast, so I hope you're staying with me, but I'll keep it brief if I can. So flight risk is pretty common sense. So from a strategic point of view, we need to know of if there are people who are key successors, what's the risk of losing them? Now, in large organisations with clever systems, they can actually do mathematically, they can work out certain, certain roles, they can work out the risk of, of people leaving mathematically. Great, if you've got that technology, you know, but actually, wouldn't it be better to talk, to talk to people? You know, we know if there's people in a certain role where um, headhunters are poaching them. So we know if we need to be more protective or put them into certain development. We also know where certain managers are less good at developing staff um, and they have a history of higher loss rate, attrition rate. So hopefully you've got that kind of data. You know where the pockets are. If you're in a small or medium-sized organisation, this is a no-brainer. Your manager should be talking to their people and have a real sense of where they are. And often it's not so much the... Well, you know, the ambitious ones, that's almost easy to deal with if you can make sure that you're giving them a path, the manager's supporting them, they feel like they're on a development route. Often the things that will make people leave are personal circumstances, like they've got caring issues and the manager or that particular part of the organisation that they work in says they can only work those hours or else because that would be setting a precedent. My personal experiences, and certainly in an SME, is you can reduce flight risk or you can increase retention by being flexible. Now, I realise that can be harder in a bigger business, but actually most people are so grateful for the opportunity to work in line with their personal circumstances that if the business can allow it, then I think it's quite a sensible thing to do. So thinking about things like that and trying not to be too rigid um, is key. Of course, you then have to be you know, equitable and fair. So I realise it is complicated when it comes down to processes. If everybody wants to start at seven o'clock in the morning and go home at three, then clearly that doesn't work. But it's about looking across an organisation and you can lose people more often because of their personal circumstances, in my experience, than you know necessarily the ambitious side of things as well. And then final sort of topic here is just like your breadth of the leadership pipeline. So I'm going to just touch on this here because I think it's worth a whole separate subject. I talk on it a little bit more in the paper as I tried to summarise this into a paper because I'm realised there's lots of topics in here and it may be helpful if you want to download what I've written um, as a document, as a mini white paper, then you'll be able to access that from the website. But I think this is about thinking broadly about the breadth of the skills lower down the organisation and making sure you're building people's skills which are right for the future. So I touched on this earlier, but it's making sure that um, those who are in the readiness position have actually got skills which are about strategic acumen. They've got commercial acumen, they've got leadership skills as well as technical mastery. And I, I say, I'll go through that in more detail because if you're interested in knowing more about this, it's a book that came out about 20 years ago, but it's still really good about, lead, it's called The Leadership Pipeline. I'll put the links in the show notes, but by Sharan, the C, Drotter, and Noel, the surnames. And it talks about how we need to go up an organisation, pick up key skills as we go up it. 
um, in order to build a strong leadership pipeline, those leadership skills, we need to build them. Where it becomes a problem is where people have just got technical mastery and they go straight into a very senior role without having built any of the self-leadership. Um, it links back to that Harvard one. They, have, they don't know how to lead others um, and then, therefore they're not going to necessarily be as successful. One subject that um, I'll topic, I'll just mention, which I think we'll do in a future podcast as well, because it's a, it's an, it's a way in which you can fill your leadership pipeline, if you like, is something called the boomerang effect. So it doesn't always have to be people from within. Sometimes we've lost talent because we've maybe not managed it well enough, or sometimes it's inevitable, but they might come back. So thinking about how you can maybe bring in talent from outside that's worked from the business before is also something you could consider for succession planning um, if you're aware of them and you're able to keep connected. So in summary, where should you start if you're going to do succession planning? I'd say first of all, start by defining the key roles and the skills that are required to succeed in those. So it's the skills that you need. Understand which ones are the priorities or provide the greatest flight risk. Implement a process that allows you to objectively assess performance and potential as part of your performance management, your ongoing performance management and career planning cycle. So that should be something that on a regular basis you're able to gather that information. If you're going to use something like a nine box grid approach, try to make sure that the inputs are as objective as possible, which links to the previous point. Then you can map your highest performers from the nine box grid, or if you choose a slightly different variation on a grid, whatever you where however you choose to define your highest performers, then you should be mapping those over to the roles that require successors. And that's where you can then see do a gap analysis. So you can say, okay, so we've got gaps in this certain area, or we've got a real mass of talent in this other area. And think about what you can do with that strategically. Can we give the talent in this other area the technical skills to be a successor for a role we've got gaps in? What can we do to retain that talent to keep it engaged? So it's both look at the gaps and your, um, you know, your excess groups of talent. Then it's about development. This is where if you're in HR, you need to be working with your development team. It's about making sure that people feel they've got the visibility of a career path and the development plans in place to develop the skills they require for that role. And if you've got extra numbers, think about how people can be developed into lateral roles. Often it's about a challenge. It doesn't have to be just an upward. It's people feeling that they are developing. Ultimately, these are the ones who are your top performers and you want to keep them in the organisation. So it's talent management and succession planning. You see almost they fit completely hand in glove there. So I'm hoping that that was reasonably useful to you. As, as I think you'll have gathered, I mean, as much of what we do, it's largely common sense, but there's loads of jargon in it, hence I'm calling it a jargon buster. And it's fitting into a culture of risk management and continuous improvement. It very much needs to link into development as well, but it's just as important in a small business as it is in a large business. And I think in a small business, that's where we maybe need to be a bit more creative. And it's about saying that person's got talent. I'm not sure where they're going to be a successor, but you know, as a business, we're going to grow. So we're going to need to keep them and develop them, maybe even into a role that doesn't exist yet. So hopefully that was of interest to you. I'd really like to thank Alison Singer for suggesting that as a topic. Really, really appreciate any feedback that you have on whether that was what you were after in that topic, because I can go down a different route if necessary and, and suggestions for future topics would be very much appreciated too. If you are enjoying what we're doing with the HR Uprising podcast, I'd be hugely grateful if you took the time to give us um, a review on whichever 
whether it's podcasts, whichever tool you listen to it on, whether it's iTunes or um, Spotify. And I found out we're actually accessible through Alexa now, which is quite exciting. It worked for once. For once, Alexa this morning gave me something, recognised what I was asking for. Um, so you can get it through Alexa. Uh, so we really, really appreciate it if you do take the time to give us um, a feedback. The reason I say that is because it helps other people find us. There's loads of podcasts out there and it's a bit of a minefield. Of course, also, if you can recommend us to your friends, get involved in social media and interact with us, then that's also much, much appreciated because we only want to do this if this is adding value to you. So one final thing just to make you aware of if you are connected with us on this, the purpose of the HR Uprising, as I've mentioned before, is about encouraging collaboration and learning from each other. I'm going to be doing these masterclasses, which will involve input from people like yourselves, and also from CEOs. And one of the things we're going to kick off in the next six weeks or so, by the time you listen to this, will be a mastermind. We're gonna do a pilot mastermind and also potentially some meetups, some potential connections and things. So if you're interested in a mastermind, if you've never heard of masterminding, it's kind of group mentoring. So it's not so much just a one-on-one mentoring, it's where perhaps you can get together as a group of people who work as a cohort and I'll only have six to 12 people in the first cohort. There'll be no charge for this, it's just something we want to pilot and see if it's going to work. And we'll do most of it digitally, basically we'll use technology to get together once every couple of weeks, share challenges, share what we're, you know, what we're doing, what's working, and we learn from each other and we help each other with challenges in a sort of trusted environment. And so Mastermind is it's used in lots of business environments. I'm not so sure about it being used in HR yet, which is why I want to try it. So if you're interested in that, do get in touch with me, message me, and um, we'll look to kick that off in February and trial it, see how it goes. So that's enough for me. Apologies, that's quite a long one. I didn't expect it to be quite so long, maybe because I did a bit of a, a waffly intro. Uh, thanks so much if you've listened all the way to the end. Next week, we will be doing a Culture Change Masterclass with Karen Gill. And then I've got some other future solo episodes lined up. So thank you so much for listening to the HR Uprising podcast. My name is Lucinda Carney and have a great day. Thank you for listening to the HR Uprising podcast. You can access more information, including resources or links mentioned in the show at our website, www.hruprising.com. Also, you might want to join our LinkedIn community or tweet to us at HR Uprising. We'd love to hear from you.